our longtime members, those like Pastor David and others, and Sunil, who was up here in the beginning, would remember uh, our old church bulletins. Okay, uh, our current church bulletins are quite an improvement from back in those days. Our first bulletins were actually trifolds, which aren't exactly the coolest thing in the world. And then we had our season of errors and misprints, but now today we have these beautifully designed and edited first class bulletins. If we proclaim that the building, if we can proclaim that the building across the street is the most beautiful building in the world, then we can self-proclaim as well that our bulletins are the most beautiful bulletins in the world. We're hopeful that they're uh, helpful to you even during the service, but even afterwards as you can reflect on the texts from the Bible, the song lyrics, your sermon notes. Well, overall, good bulletins can be a helpful means of communication. Uh, However, bulletins are not normally meant to be a form of entertainment. Uh, But occasionally there are misprints found in bulletins that are rather humorous. Sometimes the unexpected happens. One pastor put together a sampling of mistakes in church bulletins, these misprints. Now, just for the record, just, just to say up front, none of these came here from Redeemer Church of Dubai bulletins. Let me just say that up front, not our mistakes. All right, let me see if you can discern the mistakes in these bulletins. Today, the pastor will preach his farewell message, after which the choir will sing, Break Forth into Joy. How about this one? The choir will meet at the Matthews house for fun and sinning. It's a rather unfortunate one, isn't it? Miss Margaret Jo saying, I will not pass this way again, giving obvious pleasure to the congregation. How about this one? Next week, we'll begin a 9.30 a.m. worship service. The 11 a.m. service will be hell as usual. One letter, one letter, so much damage. How about this one? Ladies, don't forget the rummage sale. It's a good chance to get rid of things not worth keeping around the house. Bring your husbands. (laughs) I love that one. The last one, most unfortunate, even cringeworthy, Weight Watchers Weight Loss Meeting will meet at 7 a.m. Please use the large double doors in the side entrance. That's just mean. Those are some unfortunate bulletin misprints, aren't they? I think worse than any that we've had at Redeemer. At first glance, there appears to be a misprint here in the book of Romans, in this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. So far, Paul has been upbeat, hasn't he? He's been cheerful. He's talked about the love that he has for the Romans. He's talked about the passion that he has to come and to be with them, to impart some spiritual gift to them. He's wanted to come, but God has prevented him. He calls the Romans saints, prays for them day and night. He desperately wants to be with the Romans. But then starting in verse 18 here in chapter 1 and on all the way through to Romans chapter 3, verse 20, We see the first section of our letter that we've entitled Condemnation. After all the beautiful words of the introduction, listen to what Paul is going to talk about in today's passage. The wrath of God. Ungodliness. 
unrighteousness twice, the suppressing of truth, that there are those who are without excuse, those who don't honor God, those who don't give Him thanks. They were futile in their thinking. They had foolish hearts, and I could go on and on. This is the beginning of the heart of the letter. At first glance, we're thinking, what's going on here? It feels like a bulletin misprint. Why would Paul start here? It's unexpected after such a cheerful and encouraging introduction. Well, friends, it's not a mistake, and we'll see why this morning. But before we jump in, let me just help us remember again the outline of Romans And then I'll again remind us of our main point. The first 17 verses are an introduction, and then the end of chapter 15 and all of 16 serve as a conclusion to the book. But in the middle, we have several major sections of Romans. First, we start with condemnation, and that heads uh, up under the first major section, God has welcomed us. And then the first sub-point there, it starts with condemnation. And that's the question we're going to ask today. What is condemnation? We have to understand our sin before a holy God, before we can understand His wrath and judgment. And then there's something amazing beginning in uh, the end of chapter 3, justification. This great section where we see that believers in Christ have been declared righteous through the death of Jesus. Then we'll look at sanctification, how we grow in holiness. And then there's explanation, how God's promises to Israel and the salvation of the Gentiles go together. And then in chapter 12, we see application. The whole book is filled with application, but in these chapters, starting in 12 on into 15, we see specific application related to what we'll have studied in the previous chapters in Romans. And remember our main point for the book, God has welcomed us into his family And so we are to welcome others into his family for the glory of God. God has welcomed us, Redeemer Church, and so we are to welcome others to come to Christ. Well, today we begin the section on condemnation, which we'll pick up again in several weeks. Starting next week, we'll begin a four-week series in the book of Malachi the last book of the Old Testament. Let me just see a show of hands if you've ever heard a verse-by-verse sermon exposition of Malachi. Raise your hand. Okay, I see maybe two or just two hands, four hands. Uh, So most of us have not heard this book taught. I encourage you to start reading it on your own ahead of time. And we're going to spend the month of November looking at this key prophetic book, Malachi, the very last book of the Old Testament, before we see Jesus come and we talk about Advent and the Incarnation over Christmas. But before we get there, let's look at our verses in a sermon entitled, The Wrath. And then we'll celebrate the Lord's Table communion together. My first pastor, Tommy, he taught me Romans, and he'd often have us write words uh, next to verses uh, in our Bible as he taught. He had us write these five words for this section. I'm going to use these five words to serve as our outline today. So let me just give it to you up front. Number one, revelation. Number two, rejection. Number three, reason. Number four, replacement. Number five, reprobation, which has the idea of condemnation. Revelation, rejection, reason, replacement, and reprobation. That's where we're headed here on this 
text. First, we see revelation. You can look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Whenever we see a for or the word therefore in Scripture, specifically in the beginning of a verse or in the beginning of a section, we have to ask, what is that for, therefore? What's its purpose? It's an important linking word in Scripture. It's connecting what we saw at the end of the introduction to the beginning of this section on condemnation. Paul is not here speaking of Christians, but he's speaking generally of the Gentile world. The powerful gospel we looked at two weeks ago, for all the world, verses 16 and 17, it's because of the wrath of God which hangs over us. We need the good news of Jesus. The way verses 16 and 17 make sense is that apart from faith in Christ, we sit under God's wrath. This is that, the fact that all of us deserve death and judgment. In verse 17, the righteousness of God was revealed by faith. Here in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed. Both of these in the present tense. This is not merely in the future. This is happening right now. The wrath of God is presently being revealed from heaven. It's the judgment of God on those who don't yet believe. Since the wrath of God is against sin, we need a way of salvation that deals with our sin. This is what we saw in our previous two verses. Now there are a couple different words used for the idea of wrath. In the scriptures. Two main words used for wrath. From the first word, themos, we get the words thermometer or thermos. This is a red hot kind of anger. It's one where we lose control. It's an outburst. We, we lose our temper. You could probably think of an example, maybe with your child, maybe a, a, your spouse, a coworker, a friend, a housemate. Maybe you're too harsh. You snapped. You had to apologize. The word here is not themos. The word here is orge. This is a more controlled anger. The wrath of God is not impulsive. The wrath of God is not unthoughtful. It's as one author writes, it's perfect, settled, and controlled. It doesn't mean it's weak. In fact, it's agonizing. It's awful. Scholar Leon Morris defines God's wrath as a term that expresses the settled and active opposition of God's holy nature to everything that is evil. The point, the wrath of God is not some sudden emotion. It doesn't come from nowhere. It's a fixed and controlled anger against sin. This is different than us. Oftentimes, anger controls us. Oftentimes, anger controls man. But we have a God who controls anger. You see the difference. It's God's divine and perfect reaction toward evil. One author reminds us that it's the perfectly appropriate response for a holy and righteous God to be moved to anger against evil. A judge with no distaste for evil would not be a good judge. God is angry with two distinct things, ungodliness and unrighteousness, or in summary, our sin against God. 
This is consistent throughout the Bible. Maybe you've heard this heresy somewhere that the Old Testament God, that's a God of wrath. But then there's a New Testament God who's a, a God of love. Well, friends, that is heresy. That is wrong doctrine. Jesus and our triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's the same from eternity past on into eternity future. The God of the whole Bible is a God of perfect love, perfect justice, perfect wrath from Genesis through Revelation, from the first day to the last. God is immutable. That means he's unchangeable. He doesn't change. He's been the same from eternity past to eternity future. Now, some of us might cringe at the thought of God being wrathful. But for those of us who are followers of Christ, those of us who follow Jesus, we understand this because we've looked upon Christ on the cross. The cross shows us the measure of God's wrath. It took the cross to forgive us, to satisfy God's wrath. The cross shows us that we deserve death for our sin, but Christ, fully God, fully man, took that upon himself. He took it for us. Now, Leon Morris continues and says, Forgiveness is no cheap gesture. It is as costly as the cross. Now, why is God's wrath revealed on the ungodly and on the unrighteous? Well, many reasons, but one truth we see Paul write here is that they were suppressing the truth, that they were under God's wrath, they were suppressing the truth. It's not that they didn't know that their actions were wrong, but they actually knew the truth and they chose to ignore it or even actively suppress it. They weren't ignorant. They opposed God. How do we know? Look at verses 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And then listen to this. So, this is to all the Gentiles, this is to everyone, so they are without excuse. The truth is plain to them. Why? Well, because God has shown it to them. Because God has revealed it to them. God has revealed it to all of us. Some may have the Bible or an apostle in those days teaching them. Most don't. But what do we have today? Well, one thing we have that Paul talks about is creation. This is a good time to stop and talk about a couple of theological ideas. General revelation and special revelation. Special revelation is God's word. It includes the good news which leads to salvation. Paul is not here in these verses talking about special revelation, but general revelation. The late John Stott uses four words to describe this type of revelation, general, natural, continuous, and creational. It's general because it's shown to everybody everywhere throughout all times. That's opposed to special, which has been made to particular people in particular places through Christ and the Bible. It's natural because it's been made through the natural order, as opposed to the supernatural, which would include things like the risen Christ. It's continuous because from creation onward till today, we see God's handiwork everywhere. 
And fourth, it's creational, the revealing of God's glory through what he has made. Now, this is not the gospel. Paul is not, in these verses, speaking about salvation through Christ. He's not making a case that somehow creation alone can save someone or that we can know the whole counsel of God by looking at a rainbow. Paul is saying that God has revealed enough of himself to the Gentiles for them to be blameworthy when they sin and reject him. Scholar, again, Leon Morris writes, Our condemnation in each case lies in the fact that we have sinned against the light we have, not against the light we have never received. Thus, though the Gentiles did not receive the full revelation in the law of the Old Testament, they did receive enough illumination to know what was right, and they followed the wrong. God has made known in creation enough of his person that people are without excuse if they worship the creation rather than the creator. This fits in with a long line of biblical teaching. This is not new in Romans 1. Psalm 29 tells us the heavens declare the glory of God. Tom Schreiner puts it this way. God has stitched into the fabric of the human mind his existence and power so that they are instinctively recognized when one views the created world. John Calvin called us spectators of the world. We were given eyes to see his work in the world as if looking at a beautiful painting and being led to the painter. When we look at creation, we see order, we see design, we see dignity. As the title of one book suggests, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. It takes more faith to believe there is no God than to believe that there is a creator God. Why? Well, we look up and we see the stars in the sky, the vast ocean waters, the desert sands, the mighty mountains, roses and sunflowers, giraffes and zebras. And every day without fail, no matter what the weather report says, the sun rises and then the sun sets. Nature points to God. We can also look around this room. Let me just do that now. Last week, if you remember, Richard Chin asked us to talk to each other. So I'm not going to do that. But I want you to look around right now. Just to look around. I'm, I'm not going to uh, keep going until we all do this. Look around. Turn around. Look at each other. Look at who's here. Look how the nations have gathered here. Look around. Keep looking. There are people of dozens of nations and, and, and have are breathing, are being sustained in their lives. Okay, it's a little weird. You can stop now. But look around. What's more, more miraculous than the fact that we are breathing right now and being sustained by the same air and what's more miraculous than the fact that we are from 50 or 60 or more nationalities is the fact that each and every one of us in this room, as you look to the left, as you look to the right, and as you look behind you, is that every single person in this room was made in the image of God. Isn't that incredible? Everyone is an image bearer. Pastor David just talked about Christians hurting one another and, and strife. And, and when we do that, and when we do that, we are hurting other image bearers. Those that don't yet know Jesus, they are image bearers. Those of us here that know Christ, we are image bearers. This is incredible. This is general revelation. It isn't enough to save you, but it is enough to put you on the pursuit of truth. The problem, though, is that people can see it with their eyes, but then they've denied the truth. And Paul says they are without excuse. His words, not mine. 
If they didn't know the truth, how could they suppress it back in verse 18? The reason they know it is because God has plainly and clearly shown it to them. But, verse 21, they rejected God. That's the second point. The second R, rejection. We'll go more quickly in these last four. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul says that they knew God. They refused to honor him as God. Now, they didn't know him in a salvific way. This refers to rather the limited knowledge of God's power and glory, which is available to everybody through general revelation. But they wouldn't give thanks to him. Their beliefs were affecting their minds. They were foolish. Their hearts were darkened. Darkness is a metaphor for sin in the Bible. Paul and the other New Testament authors will often use light and darkness in opposition of one another. In contrast, comparing the things of God to the things of the evil one. The heart stood for the entire inner life and emotions of a person, intellectual and emotional. When someone rejects the Savior, it's not just their thinking that's affected. It's their entire life. Oh, church, isn't this sad? Isn't this sad as we consider those in our lives who don't yet know Jesus? Well, what should have been the response of these Gentiles there in Rome? Well, they should have glorified God, but time and time again in this passage, they do the wrong thing. They knew enough about God to give glory to God, to give the glory that he deserves, and they withheld it. They rejected him. Why did they withhold it? Well, there's a third R. Paul's going to give us the reason. That's the third R, a reason. Verse 22, it's because they were claiming to be wise, and claiming to be wise, they became fools. They thought they knew what they were doing. This verse is dripping with irony. They were wrong, but they thought they were right, and they even boast of their wrongness. But in the process of boasting, they're actually making a fool of themselves. Maybe you can think of an example when you were with somebody else, and they were so certain that their point of view or their fact was 100% right, and you know deep down, you know that they're wrong. You know 100% that they are wrong, but they keep arguing it, and you are listening there, and as they keep arguing and even showing pride in their ignorance and pride in their false knowledge, it's kind of embarrassing, isn't it? Well, you could write the word, well, claiming to be wise, these Gentiles became fools. And look at what they did, verse 23. Here's the fourth R. We're moving, moving faster here. The fourth R, replacement. Here's what they did. They replaced God. Number four, replacement. Verse 23, they exchanged. Now, this is, this is wild. Just consider this for a moment. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. For images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, kids and tweens, I need some of your help here. And even teens can jump in. I've got two questions for you. And I want you just to shout out the answers. I have one now and then one in a little bit. And here's what I want you to answer based on the verse I just read. What does this verse remind you of in the Bible? Where in the Bible do humans exchange God for an image? Anybody? Tweens, teens, youth, kids? Golden calf, yes, five points to, to the one there in the back. The golden calf, 
That's right, in Exodus, God's people, they exchange God for a golden calf. Look at these verses from Exodus chapter 32. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Isn't this the most ridiculous defense you've ever heard? I've always thought this was so silly. Here, here, here's Aaron before Moses. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, Moses. We just threw some gold into the fire and somehow I really don't know how this happened, but this golden calf just popped out of the fire. It was wild. You should have seen it. Now, this is crazy. John Stott calls this an absurd exchange. They exchanged God for a golden calf. This is what we have here in Romans. They didn't pursue God or even the creature. I want you to see how, how bad and how demonic this really was. It wasn't that they left God to worship a creature, but listen, they left God to pursue merely images of the creation both in the golden calf and then in this passage today, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, for images resembling, I mean, did you catch that? Images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. They exchanged the, the glory, the infinite worth of our great God for basically nothing. I mean, no one makes this trade. It would be like exchanging a diamond ring for a fake plastic one. Or if you're a kid, you don't give your best Pokemon card to someone for their worst one. It's a bad idea. It's a sorry trade. But here, more seriously, an image of creation is a sorry replacement for the God of the universe. Do you see the absurdity of this text? Do you see the absurdity of what Paul is calling out? It looks crazy, and this is what idolatry looks like in our lives. It looks just as absurd. Author Tim Keller says that in these verses, Paul is calling us all plagiarists. That we take what God has made, and we pass it off as our own. And we change the object of worship. Now, how have we been guilty of this? How have you been guilty of this? many possible ways, just to name a few. One, since we just had the faith and work retreat, how about our work? During the retreat, it's talked about being a light for God in the workplace. It's talked about sharing your faith in the workplace. And yet many of us, our work has been tainted by our continual greed for promotions and pay raises. And we worship worldly success instead of the God who is the giver of all successes. Well, how about school? First to our students, perhaps you value popularity or recognition more than making God known to your friends. Or parents, do we put undue pressure on our children to score certain marks so that we can be applauded as parents? Or how about ministry? How are we with ministry? Do we serve God to please God or to be seen by man? I could go on and on. We take good things 
And instead of giving God the glory, we take pride in them as our own. Any replacement of God's glory with the things of this world is insane. That's what Paul is saying here. And why did they do this? Well, fifth and final are reprobation. Reprobation. This means really condemnation. It means to be excluded from God. We see this in verses 21, or actually 24 and 25. Let me read those. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because, now, now here's the last verse here today, because... The reason is because they exchanged the truth of God, the truth about God, for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, kids and tweens and youth, again, a second question. Here's number two, and you could shout out the answer. When did something like this happen? When did two humans exchange God's truth to follow the wicked nonsense of an evil created being? Can you remember? Just shout it out. All right, lots of you this time. Great job. Adam and Eve. It started with the very first two humans. Joe and Namartha, very proud of the kids and tweens in this room. Adam and Eve. They thought that they knew better than God. The phrase God gave them up here or God gave them over, it's used extensively in the Old Testament when God hands his people over to their enemies. This is not a passive handing over. This is an active one. This form of judgment leads to, to the dishonoring of their bodies. God hands them over to the abuse of their own bodies. Now, when we think of the wrath of God, I think sometimes we think of maybe a lightning bolt coming down or we think of the fiery judgment of, of hell and eternal damnation. But here we see that it's a handing over of sinners to themselves. Well, as one author puts it, God's wrath here operates not by God's intervention, so not by God's stopping the sin, not by God's intervening, but precisely by his not intervening but letting men and women go their own way. This is the judgment of giving us what we want. This is the judgment of us continuing on in our sin. And sadly, we know that sin won't satisfy. We'll always want more and more and more. Even of good things, so much so that they become ultimate things, therefore become idolatrous things. It's never enough. Verse 24 means sinful desires, lusts. It literally means an over-desire and all-controlling drive and longing. The main, main problem in our heart is not only desiring sin, but an over-desiring of good things. It's when we take good things and we make them the main thing. Tim Keller writes, the worst thing that can happen to us is when we're given what our hearts over-desire. Think of that person who worships their career. The worst thing that can happen to them is that they get that promotion. Getting what they want when it's an idol in our, our hearts will only lead us down a path of destruction. Keller adds, this is the wrath of God to give us what we want too much, to give us over to the pursuit of the things we've put in place of God. The worst things God can do to human beings in the present is to let them reach their idolatrous goals. The great tragedy is that we choose this for ourselves. God allows us to walk through the door we have chosen. Is there any way out of this situation? In a couple of chapters, we're going to see the gospel explained so powerfully, beginning in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. But we, we have a little taste of it in verse 25 here today. There is a creator God who is blessed 
forever. The way to stop suppressing the truth, the way to stop suppressing it, is to worship and praise God instead. We have to acknowledge that apart from God, we all sit under God's righteous wrath. That all of us live just as the Gentiles back in this day lived. And we all need this God of verse 25 to save us. We need to repent. We need to turn from our sins. We need to trust in Christ to save us. Through Christ is where we find freedom and love and grace and peace and mercy. That's why I'm excited about tomorrow. Are you excited about tomorrow? It's a great holiday. It's a day that we wait all year for. It's October the 31st. A great day to celebrate. I hope you've already made your preparations for October 31st. Tomorrow, Reformation Day. Do you celebrate Reformation Day? In 1517, the great reformer Martin Luther, he nailed 95 theses or statements on that church door in Wittenberg, Germany. He nailed these statements opposing the buying your way into heaven. Opposing buying your relative's way into heaven. Opposing salvation by works. Opposing all of that and pointing totally to the grace of God, which saves alone, saves us alone. Nothing else can be added. The way to move from the wrath of God lying on our lives is to look to the one who came to take God's wrath upon himself. Jesus reminds us that while we deserved a full cup of the wrath of God, Jesus drunk the whole thing for us. He died on the cross. On the third day, he rose from the dead. Redeemer Church, Redeemer Church, as we approach the communion table, this isn't just good news. This isn't just great news, church. This is the best news. And if you're here and you don't yet know Jesus, we hold out this news to you and we plead with you to believe. We plead with you to trust in Jesus to save yourself. And you can do that right now in your seat. Two weeks ago, I talked about the spiritual altar call. I'm giving another one right now. Believe in Jesus. He can save you from your sin and better than that. We'll be in heaven, and yes, it'll be a place where there's no tears, no disease, no death, but even better than that, we'll be face-to-face -face with our God for all eternity. Let's pray. Oh, Father, as we confess that apart from you, we can do nothing, we can contribute nothing to our salvation and we are without hope, but we are blown away that not only does Jesus drink the full cup of God's wrath for us as believers, but you turn back and you give us a cup full of blessings, full of your love for relationship of yourself. Father, we thank you for giving us every spiritual blessing in Christ. We know we deserve the opposite, and yet we sit in, sit in awe of your love. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.